Well, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Fredland. And as always, we are sponsored by Running Aces Casino and Racetrack. And I want to thank those guys uh, for all they do to support the podcast. Uh, This is fantastic. They believed in us when we were first starting out, and they've been with us uh, and seen us grow. So thanks to Running Aces. And if you get a chance, stop by there. Check out their website, runaces.com. A lot of great stuff going on there. A lot of great tournaments, some really cool year-end stuff happening as well. Uh, some really big, uh, nice field tournaments. So you'll want to check that out uh, as well. So as as we continue to think about what we're doing here with Rec Poker more and more, uh, what's emerging is this idea of building community. Uh, I've heard from a ton of you guys. I've I've gotten emails. I've gotten Facebook messages, uh, Twitter DMs, all kinds of stuff. And what seems to be really resonating with you guys is this idea of creating a community, um, both in the broader sense, like this rec poker nation context, but also for you individually. I know a number of you are saying, you know, everybody says you have to learn a community, but I don't have the people around me that really want to learn the game or learn the game in the same way or at the same frequency. And so how do we build that up? And so that's what I'm hoping to uh, start to do more and more of with some of these online seminars, some of these in-person seminars. But also I'm looking at building some of these, um, I guess, learning communities online through Zoom uh, that I'm happy to facilitate. And so I'm looking for feedback on that if that's something you're interested in doing, either with a group that you already know or just joining another group of people that are uh, at the same general experience level and starting to learn together. Uh, We could have regular topics, whether we meet weekly, monthly, bi-weekly, whatever that is, the group can kind of decide that. So uh, I want to build that out, uh, but I need to know how much demand there is for that. It certainly seems like there's demand, uh, but uh, if there's enough, uh, then I'll help build it. And I think uh, we'll we'll make make a go of that. And I think that'll be super helpful for a lot of people. A couple of quick things, just sort of a reminder, next Thursday or this coming Thursday, November 29th from 7 to 9 p.m. Central Time, that's Minnesota time here in the U.S., we're going to be doing an online player panel. So a Q&A with some great recreational players. It's really um, designed to be something where you can join and you can ask your questions and they can answer it and they have some different perspectives. And I think it's going to be very, very helpful. So uh, please go to recpokertraining.com, go under learning opportunities, and there's a player panel option there to get all the information you want on that. Also, uh, just finalized December 16th, In Lionel Lakes, Minnesota, we're going to be doing our first live play and learn seminars. So we're going to do one from noon to three and one from four to seven p.m. And they are what we talked about before where uh, people play and then after the hand, all the hands are revealed. And then we go through the hands and talk about uh, some different, you know, we ask kind of why decisions were made. We give some new insight. We look at different ways that things could have been done, bet sizing, all of that stuff. Uh, we've done it once before and it's fantastic. Uh, but this is the first time doing it through Rec Poker and I think it's going to be great. So go there, go to the same place, recpokertraining.com, learning opportunities. The play and learn section has more information on that, but you can also just reach out to me if you have any questions. Uh, that's going to be fantastic. The noon session is designed more for uh, entry-level players, people that have less experience, and I'm going to be leading that session. The 4 o'clock session is for sort of that next-level player, uh, certainly still a recreational player, but um, a little bit more advanced, a little bit more experience, and that one's going to be led by Matt Hamilton. So great stuff coming up there. Um, So feel free to reach out if you have any comments, questions, concerns about any of that stuff. Uh, I also want to take a second to thank, uh, we have three new Patreon subscribers, Tracy Salzbrunn, Jack Burke, and Matt Sunberg. And I want to thank you guys for coming alongside of what we're doing here. 
certainly the more uh, we can get supported through Patreon, the more free content we can put out. And that's what we're hoping to do is kind of build up that, that base of support so that we can continue to provide more and more free stuff. Um, I love to do player panels. I love to do seminars. I love to do meet and greets. I love to do play and learns. Uh, and ideally, my dream is that one day we can just offer all that stuff for free. But obviously, we need to have the support on the other end. So uh, your support on Patreon is huge. And I think even more so, it's just a huge encouragement to me personally to have people say, hey, we support what you're doing. We love what you're doing. Thanks for the free content um, and, and coming alongside of us that way. So thank you uh, to Jack and to Trey and to Matt for your support on that deal. Now today I'm going to revisit something that was a, a long, <laughs> a long, uh, a long session that we were doing on my opening hand ranges. I took a break from it to try to apply some things to incorporate some feedback from all of you guys. And I got some really good feedback and I got some really good uh, insights as I was actually playing those things. Uh, and I found out that there were some hands that I was raising with that I thought, you know, this is actually better as a call, a call behind. And there's some hands that I was calling behind that I think, man, this, this really should be a, a raised spot. And so I've adjusted some of those things. I've, I've re-looked at my opening hand ranges and my strategy. And uh, I'm really excited about where it ended up. So I'm going to share that with you. Uh, I'm not going to uh, provide all of this as like a, a content, like a, all of the details of the webinar and all those things. Eventually, I'm going to build this out into something that actually is a, a one standalone sort of thing that goes through all of the math and all of the, the ranges and everything in, in great detail. This is really designed as a high-level summary. I'm still working on it, uh, but I really want your feedback on this uh, both in terms of if you've played it, which I know some of you are doing, uh, what's working, what's not working, but also just looking at it as from a third party, uh, what do you like, what don't you like, what are you concerned about? So I'm going to give you, uh, I guess I'm going to walk through this in, in some detail. I'm just not going to have all the graphics and all the charts and all that stuff. I'm still waiting to kind of finalize it, but this is something I'm feeling better and better about as we go. And so let's walk through this. Um, for those of you who are just listening as a podcast, I will have some of this uh, in, in graphs and charts on the video uh, in YouTube. That's something we just started, the Rec Poker channel on YouTube. Uh, I'm just saying I'm not going to have all the details, all the charts, all the pretty graphics, but there will be some of that on YouTube. So uh, if you don't want to try to take notes while you're driving, watch the video when you can, uh, and I will try to uh, at least give the high-level um, information uh, as a visual representation as well. Okay, so with that, I am going to uh, to start digging into and start sharing uh, where I am right now with my preflop ranges. Uh, one of the things that I've started to incorporate too is the learning that we did at our live seminar with Matt Hunt was uh, the anatomy of an MTT, a multi-table tournament. And so he broke tournaments down into six phases. Um, and the first two phases are something I'm going to pay attention to with this. So I'm trying to look at how do I determine my opening hand ranges, my preflop decisions early in a tournament, but distinguish a little bit between phase one, which he called preservation, and phase two, which he called expansion. So I am making some, some tweaks depending on where we're at there. And so the first thing I needed to do was to say, well, what do we mean by phase one and phase two? And he doesn't give detail as far as what he's thinking, but he does give some high-level thoughts on it. And so I took that and I said, well, for me, what does that mean? What, when do we move from the preservation phase to the expansion phase? And it's certainly it's a gradual thing. It's not like this, this binary 
okay, one hand, now we're here, now we're there. It's a gradual thing, but what's a general framework uh, for doing that? And I looked at blind schedules. I looked at uh, when, uh, you know, when do we hit the antes? Um, how many people generally are left there? Also, how do we think about the bubble? Like when, when should the ICM considerations for a bubble actually start appearing? So let's say you have 10 people are going to be paid. Does the ICM implication of the bubble start when there's 11 left, 12 left, 15 left, 20 left? When does that actually start? When should you start considering that as part of your decisions? And so as some general guidelines, what I've done is I've said, I'm going to consider the preservation stage up until there's about half of the field left. So obviously that's a pretty long phase. But until there's about half of the field left, I'm going to consider this preservation, meaning I'm going to play good, solid poker. Um, I'm going to take opportunities when they're there, but I'm going to be bent toward preserving my chips. I'm going to be in a low volatility acceptance sort of sort of paradigm there. So uh, about half the field, that's going to be when I'm going to start going. That's my trigger for moving into the expansionary phase. Now, I think it might be closer to like 60% of the field left, 65% of the field left. But I think this is close enough and it's easy to remember. Part of what I've always said I'm trying to do is not just be as, as strategically optimal as possible, but do this in a way that's actually implementable. It's memorable for those of us who are not as experienced. So I think this is a good starting point. And then, of course, you can adjust as you get more comfortable and you get more insights on that. But for me, I'm going to distinguish phase one up until half the field is gone. And then phase two, I'm going to consider up until 15% of the field is left. So this is assuming 10% of the field is paid, which is typical for the running aces tournaments that I play. They pay about 10%. So once we get to about 15% uh, of the field left, or another way to think of that is if you think about how many people are paid and you add another half of, of that, that's about when how many people are left when I think the ICM implications should really sort of kick in. So let's say, for example, there are nine people paid. Well, another half of that is, what, four and a half? I guess I could have used even numbers. Uh, but that means when there's about 13 or 14 people left, that's when I'm going to start considering more and more the ICM implications of being on the bubble. And, of course, that's going to be different if I'm a big stack, small stack, or medium stack. But that's when I'm going to start to uh, bring that into consideration. I think uh, a lot of people start that too early. Say nine people are paid, and then with 20 left, they start tightening up and playing like they're on the bubble. Well, you still have half of that remaining field has to be eliminated before you're even in the money. So I think that's too soon. And 15% might be too, but I think it's, it's sort of a general rule of thumb. So I'm going to not really consider myself being on the bubble with ICM and volatility implications until I'm about one and a half times the number of people that are paid. So with 10 left, one gets to be about 15. When there's 20, when the 20 get paid, uh, so if 10 get paid when there's about 15 left, that's when I'm going to start uh, considering myself on the bubble. Uh, when there's 20 that get paid, maybe when there's around 30 left. Uh, up until then, I'm going to consider myself in the expansionary phase, which means I am trying to build a stack so that I can leverage that stack when I'm on the bubble. So those are sort of my splits. Uh, phase one until about half the people are left. Phase two until about 15% of the people are left. So as I'm talking about my preflop decisions, that's what I'm referring to when I refer to phase one, preservation phase, phase two, expansion phase. And then uh, one of the things that was um, sort of interesting as I think about this, as we move from phase one to two, one of the, um, one of the insights is that you want to uh, start adding volatility or you have more incentive to have a style that welcomes more volatility. 
And the question that uh, some people have have sort of insinuated to me is, well, how do you add volatility? How do you how do you do that? Because I think some people think you're it's sort of flipping a switch from saying I'm going to be a passive player to I'm going to be a very active player, meaning I'm going to just start uh, raising all the time. I'm going to be the madman. Uh, and, and that is not what's happening. I think what you want to do is you want to marginally add volatility to your play. And the ways that you can do that, at least as I was making a list, some of the things that I thought of are uh, when you're talking about preflop, you can add volatility um, to your to your game by uh, determined by, by sort of expanding your playable hands. So if you just think about the most simple case, say you're on the button and everything folds to you. Um, if you're playing in a preservation mode, you might only raise with pocket twos and better, suited cards where they're both five and better, unsuited cards both 10 and higher, and maybe suited aces. That's my, at least that's my uh, default range in the preservation phase. Well, if you're moving into the expansion phase, you're willing to welcome more volatility, you're gonna start raising and opening with more hands, okay? So that is one way is you can increase the, the, the size of your playable range. That could be when there's no action, it could be when there's limps in front of you, it could be when there's raises in front of you. Uh, you, in, you expand your range. And another way of, of doing this is uh, changing the frequency or changing the balance between how many times you call and how many times you raise. So you, in spots where you would normally call in the preservation phase, you could start to raise in the expansion phase. Now, not all of the time, but just marginally. That's a way to increase volatility. And another way is through your bet sizing. You can start increasing the size of your bets, whether they're your initial opens, whether they're your three bets, whether they're uh, any of those situations. And then post-flop, you can increase your volatility by bluffing a little bit more often, semi-bluffing withdraws, uh, sizing up a little bit more there, check raising occasionally, uh, betting for value instead of pot control checking behind. Those are ways that you can increase volatility. So there's different tools that you have, but it doesn't mean that you're moving from uh, super knit to super aggro uh, between phase one and phase two. You're looking for strategically, how do I add some volatility uh, to my game to um, try to increase the potential of building a stack so that I have that big stack so when we hit the bubble, I can leverage that to uh, to build even more chips so that I can go deep into this tournament versus um, still being resistant to volatility uh, when you're ultimately faced with a decision where I'm just trying to min cash all the time. And I think that's where a lot of pe- uh, rec players end up. Okay. So phase one, phase two, how do we introduce volatility? Okay, let's go to, um, this is a little bit of review, this one. Uh, We're just looking at defining the ranges. So you know I've gone back and forth between how I label these and and, then that sort of stuff. Um, So right now where I'm at is I've defined, I guess, nine different ranges. So um, that's kind of what I have set out. And these are ranges two through nine, that's eight of them. And then a range I'm just referring to as range E. These are my elite hands, and this will come into play later. But I think as long as we know what those ranges are, um, then we can uh, then we can more simply say, well, I have to be in this range to play this or whatever. So uh, range E for elite is just referring to pocket queens, pocket kings, pocket aces, and ace-king suited. Those are what I'm classifying as my elite. Now, obviously, you can adjust that for the situation. Maybe pocket queens aren't elite in a certain situation. And maybe pocket jacks are, or maybe ace-king offsuit is uh, in a situation. But as a, as a default, pocket queens and better, ace-king suited is my range E for elite. 
The other ranges, two through nine, are uh, defined as we've done so before, but if you're just tuning in now, um, let me review this really quickly. Um, range two is any, any pair, pocket twos, and better. So the name corresponds to the pair. So like pocket two, three, four, or range two, three, four, five, six, the minimum pair is twos, threes, fours, five, sixes, etc. Okay, so range two is pocket twos and better. And then we consider suited cards. To be in the range, the suited cards have to both be a rank that's at least three higher than the range number, okay? So pocket twos and better, and then suited cards where they're both at least five or better. And then offsuit cards have to both be one more higher than their suited counterparts with a minimum of 10, Okay, and I know this sounds complicated, but as you get it, it becomes super easy. So range two, you'd have pocket twos and better. You'd have suited cards where they're both five and higher and offsuit cards where they're both six and higher, except the rule says they both have to be 10 all the time. So it's going to be offsuit cards, both 10 and higher. Pocket uh, In range three, pocket threes, suited cards where they're both six and higher and offsuit cards, both 10 and higher. Now, range, ranges two and three, I have an, one more sort of, um, uh, I guess, rule breaker, which is I'm going to play all my suited aces are going to be in ranges two and three as well. So ace two, ace three, ace four, all those suited aces are also part of that. But if we continue on, range four would have pocket fours and better, suited cards, five, six, seven and higher, and offsuit cards, ten and higher. Range five, pocket fives. Two suited cards, eight and higher, and offsuit, 10 and higher. Range six, pocket sixes and better. Suited cards, both nine and higher. Offsuit cards, both 10 and higher. Range seven, pocket sevens and better. Suited cards, eight, nine, 10 and higher, and offsuit card where they're both jack and higher. Range eight, pocket eights and better. Nine, 10, jack. Suited cards, both jack and higher. Offsuit card, queen and higher. Range nine, Pocket nines and higher. Suited cards, both queen and higher. And offsuit cards, king and higher. So that would just be ace-king. So those are our ranges, two through nine, and the E for elite. And um, I'll put this up on the screen as well, or I'll make this available uh, to those of you who ask me or whatever. But in terms of the actual frequencies here, uh, they range uh, the range two, which is pocket twos and better, suited cards five and higher, and offsuit ten and higher. That's just under thirty percent of hands. That's like twenty nine point four percent of hands. Okay, so that's the that's the widest range. The range nine is four and a half percent, and the elite is one point seven percent. So just to give you a flavor of the frequencies, and I'll put the full chart out there for you to to check out. Okay, so that's just defining those ranges. That doesn't mean what we're going to play at this point. I just, those, that's the ease with which we can define the ranges. Okay, now, now we're going to actually play. So we sit down, uh, or the, the hand's about to begin. The first thing that we need to do is look at uh, what is the minimum playable range from our position. And again, I'm just doing this for phase one and phase two of the tournament, so the early stages of the tournament. But before the cards are dealt, um, identify your minimum playable range on your position. So you start with the button. If you are in the button, you are in playable range two. 
If you're the next one over, if that means you're in the cutoff, you're in range three. If you're somewhere in middle position, you just look at the bot and you say, okay, you're range two, range three, range four, range five, range six. So you determine what is your minimum playable range based on your position. And we move away from the button. We don't start with under the gun because this depends on how many people are left after you. So that's why we want to start with the button and go back this way. So that's the first step is say, okay, I am in range six or whatever range you might be in. And then, um, then you can look at your cards. Um, and then you will know uh, the first thing to do is say, okay, is my hand in that playable range or not? And most of the time, it's not going to be. So you can immediately say, oh, not in the range. If it's two suited cards where one is below a 10, immediately you know you are not going to be in this hand if you follow these guidelines. If it's suited cards that aren't in that range, you just know you're gone. If it's paired cards that are not in that range, you just know you're gone. So you can sort of stop that mental energy piece by knowing what range you're in, look at your hand, and know you're out of the hand. If you're going to be in the hand, then there's more mental energy to be expended, but only in those cases where you're going to be playing a hand. So I think that's a super helpful helpful sort of tip. Okay, so now you know um, if you're in the playable range or not. Now, uh, hopefully that makes sense. So right now, at this point, you've seen what position you're in, if you're in the playable, the default playable range or not. If not, you're done with the hand regardless of what happens. If so, you then need to see what's going to happen in front of you. And there are three basic things that could happen in front of you. One is that there's no action. It just folds to you. Another one is that there's one or more limpers in front of you. And the third is that there's one raise in front of you. Now, as things get more, if there's a raise and a re-raise and a raise and you know, all, all kinds of action, then it becomes a little bit more strategic and, and those things you can't really rely on defaults as much. But in general, there's one of those three things going to happen. No action, limps, or a raise. And so this next section is really to determine based on that action, if you are in the default playable range, to determine what you're going to do in response to that action. So the easiest one, of course, is if there's no action in front of you, it just folds right to you. Then if you are in the playable range, which you've already decided if you're in or you're out, if you're in that range, go ahead and raise. Your action is to raise. And, and I'm just a proponent of never open limping. If you're the first one into a pot, I don't like the idea of limping. I think it's, it's too easy for people to tell what you're doing, uh, that you're, you're raising big hands and you're, you're just limping you know, your average hands. So I'm a proponent of opening if you're the first one to act. And I generally use a two and a half times uh, size, but that's a whole nother discussion that we could get into. So that's the easiest action. If there's no action and we're in the playable range, go ahead and raise. The next thing is if, uh, if it's a limped pot, so if one or more people come into the pot and they limp, um, you're gonna keep the same playable range. If your hand was in the playable range, it's still in the playable range. The question becomes, am I going to limp behind or am I going to raise? And so we want to have a split, but a decent split between how often we just limp behind and how often we raise. And then even more so, when we raise, we want to be polarized in that raising range. We want some of our raises to be bluffs, and we want some of our raises to be for value. Those are with our good hands. And so all of the work that I put into this is about trying to figure out a system that balances these well. It plays the hands that I want to play, but it also splits them well between 
limping behind and raising. And then for when I raise, it splits them well between raising for bluff and raising for value because we don't want to just be raising for value. We don't want to only be raising there with our big hands because we become exploitable then. Uh, we want to make sure people know that we're capable of, of um, raising with, with worse hands uh, for a few reasons. First of all, we can just pick up pots that way. We, sometimes we just win with those bluffs, but other, other times um, people may push. We want people to push back on us when we have aces. We want to raise and have people re-raise us when we have aces. We don't want people to just all fold. That's just a very small pot. And, you know, with aces, we have a chance to win a nice pot if somebody has a, a good hand. So uh, anyway, that's, that's part of the, the, the idea here. And so this, this whole notion is about splitting our ranges um, so that we can take advantage of those sort of conceptual uh, strategic advantages. <clears throat> okay, so let's say, for example, uh, I'm on the button, uh, which is playable range two. So that includes any two suited cards that are at least five or higher. Um, now, if there's limpers in front of me, I look down and I see jack five suited. All right, that's kind of a crappy hand, but it's in our pre-flop playable range. Um, and um, <laughs> so uh, what I'm going to do then is I'm going to say, what I want to do is I want to raise with my bluffs with my worst hands, and I want to raise for value with my best hands. And so what I'm going to do when I am in this phase one is I am going to look, if my hand is in the playable range, but it's a suited four gapper or more, I'm going to raise that as a bluff. And if it's in range nine, I'm going to raise that for value. So that's how I'm polarizing uh, my ranges. So hopefully, um, hopefully that makes some sense. So I'm going to raise with suited four gappers and, rain, and raise with range nine, else I'm just going to call behind. So my jack five suited falls into that category. So let's say I've decided that I'm, my hand is in the range, I have jack five suited, I can immediately say, well, is that a four gapper or higher? Well, it's a four gapper, five. They're, they're in between there, there's a six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There's actually, it's a five gapper. There's five cards that fit in between jack five. So that's that's on the crappy hand. That's, that's sort of on my, my bluff side of my raising range, okay? But if I'm in range nine, where I have, say, pocket nines are better, um, suited cards jack or higher, or offsuit queen or higher, that's in my value raising hand. So I'm going to raise with both jack five suited and pocket aces uh, for different reasons, but to balance my range. So that's during phase one is, is when there's limpers in front of me, I'm going to polarize that. I'm going to play the hands that are normally in my range, but I'm going to polarize my, my raising range to be suited four gappers and range nine or higher. Those are my uh, polarized raising ranges. When I move to phase two, this is where I'm going to add some volatility. Uh, once half the field is gone, now I'm going to change that where I'm going to raise with suited three gappers and bigger gaps and raise with my range eight. Those are my value raises. So I'm shifting that from suited four gappers and, and range nine to suited three gappers and range eight as I move into a phase where I want to accept more volatility once half the field is gone and before 15% or so of the field is left. So hopefully that makes some sense. You might need to, to rework that um, in, your, in your brain. Um, and so I've got all of this information about the frequencies and making sure that it's balanced. Basically what's happening in phase one and again, I'll, I'll, I'm not sure if I'll put these on the YouTube video or not. Uh, I will publish this all as one um, comprehensive package at some point. But basically, if I'm in some of the later positions, 
uh, basically the latest five positions. Then if I'm in phase one and there's limpers in front of me, if I play the hand, so contingent on me playing the hand, if I play it, I'm going to be raising about 30% of the time and just calling behind about 70% of the time. When we enter phase two in that exact same situation, I'm going to be raising about 50% of the time and calling about 50% of the time. And then if I consider, okay, if I do raise, uh, what percentage of my raises are bluffs and how much of them are value? Uh, in the later positions, this actually increases as we get closer to uh, early position. But uh, in, in both cases, phase one and phase two, when I raise, I'm raising for value at least 50% of the time, but it's pretty balanced. On the button, it's basically 50-50, and then it becomes like 60% of the time under the gun, or I mean uh, in the cutoff, 70% in the hijack, and kind of moves that way. So in general, I'm balanced pretty good between raising as bluffs, raising for value, but I'm certainly more value heavy uh, on in phase one as well as phase two, but even more so in phase one. So again, where I'm not really accepting volatility, more of my raises are for value than in phase two, where it becomes a little bit more skewed toward uh, raising as bluffs, because I'm willing to take on some of that volatility uh, to try to pick up some pots and set myself up for uh, the, the bubble. Okay, so that's when there's limpers in front of me. Hopefully that makes sense. We'll recap all of this at the end. Uh, now, when there's a raise in front of me, so now this is the one case where we look at our default playable range and we have to adjust it. Uh, when there's a raise in front of me, I say I'm no longer going to play my default range. If I have pocket twos on the button, I'm no longer going to be considering that as, as strong as I did when there was just limpers or no action in front. So the first thing I do is I adjust the default playable range uh, by three, um, I guess, three ranges. So on the button is now five. Okay, that's my default playable range is range five, and then it goes forward from there. So um, let's say I, I look down and I'm in the hijack, I'm two off the button. So before the hand starts, I know I'm in range four. And I look at my hand, and I've got uh, 10 nine suited. So that is within the playable range. So I know if this is folded to me, I'm gonna raise. If it's limped to me, I'm gonna make my determination if I'm gonna raise or, or call. But now when somebody raises in front of me, uh, my range four becomes range seven, which means my suited cards now both need to be 10 or higher, which means my 10 nine suited is no longer in my default playable range. And so now what had become a playable hand has become a fold. So that's, what, that's the impact of having a raise in front. Uh, my default range increases by three. Uh, once I've done that though, once I've adjusted for that, then it's the same sort of approach. Um, in terms of how I'm going to respond to that, to that raise in front of me. And in this case, what I'm going to do is look at my hand and say if it's, determine if it's playable or not in the same way that I've done it before. Um, but now I'm going to figure out, well, what am I going to call behind with and what am I going to raise with? And what I'm going to raise with, I want to be polarized. So if my hand is still in the playable range, I ask myself, is this a suited three gapper or higher? If so, I'm going to raise with it. I'm also going to ask, is this in the elite level hand? My pocket queens are higher, my ace king suited. If so, I'm going to raise with it. So I'm going to split my range during phase one, and I'm going to raise with hands that are in my playable range that are suited three gappers or bigger gaps and elite hands, all right? 
And as I move into phase two, I'm going to change that to suited two gappers and higher and range nine hands. So I'm going to, in both cases, just like I did with the limp, limp in front, I'm going to reduce those ranges by one. Uh, I know this sounds complicated, especially when you're just listening to the audio, but I do think this is something uh, that's pretty easy to get used to and pretty easy to implement. Uh, I mean, poker's hard. It's hard to find a perfect case, and I know Jonathan Little often tells me, you're trying to make poker simple. Uh, yeah, I, I am, <laughs> especially for the recreational player, especially in the first couple phases of the tournament. I am trying to make poker as simple as possible, balancing uh, simplicity with with optimal play. So there has to be some complexity here, and hopefully this is not too complex that you can't overcome it. Uh, I do think um, we can have some sessions about this, but I do think this is something that you can easily start to implement. So again, um, if I'm in phase one and there's a raise in front of me, I adjust my default range by three ranges and determine, am I still in the playable range? If not, I just throw it away. If I am, then I say, okay, I'm going to call behind unless I'm in my raising range, which is split between my bluffing range and my value range. And my bluffing range in phase one is the suited three gappers or bigger gaps, and my value range are the elite hands. As I move into phase two, when half the field is gone, that, that broadens my raising range to suited two gappers and bigger gaps and range nine and higher. And if I look at the frequencies here, what's happening, uh, usually because if I'm in early position and I adjust uh, my range is three, uh, I'm really only playing really, really, really strong hands. But um, what happens here is if I'm in later position uh, and if I play the hand, I'm going to be raising between 15 and 20% of the time. So this is in phase one. I'm going to raise 15 to 20% of the time, and then I'm going to call behind 80 to 85% of the time when there's a preflop raise. And again, this is because it's phase one. I'm not really looking for volatility at this point. When we move to phase two, though, when I adjust my, my raising ranges quite a bit, I'm now going to be raising between 35 and 45% of the time when I play the hand and calling 55 to 65%. So I'm going to be, if I play the hand, I'm going to be raising about twice as much, three betting, re-raising, whatever you want to call it, pre-flop, when I've moved into phase two, the expansionary phase. Okay. And the other way to look at this is if, if, um, if I do raise, if I three bet, if I re-raise, um, I'm doing so for value uh, in phase one between 50 and 70% of the time from late position. When I move into phase two, I'm doing it for value between kind of 60 to 80% of the time, kind of in that same sort of realm. But remember, I'm raising far more often. So I'm still fairly balanced, but I'm still very value heavy uh, in all these cases when I'm three betting. But there's enough bluffs in there where people have to at least consider that I may be bluffing. Um, so I think that's a good, a good balancing thing there too. Okay, so we're starting to wrap up here. Uh, and I know I'm, I'm going to be moving these more and more to dialogues and interviews and that sort of stuff because it's hard to just hear one person's voice the whole time. So I know that could be a little bit difficult, especially a voice like mine. Uh, but bear with me. Um, this is just working through this, this phase here, and we'll get a little bit more interactive as we go. Uh, but I, I put down three key considerations in developing strategy. Uh, this is, these are things that really are underpinning uh, my strategy development that I've shared with you. So there's a lot of data, a lot of work that's gone into this. Um, it's hard to explain how much how much effort and time I put into this, uh, but it's been super helpful for me to actually uh, 
put some numbers behind the concepts. But the three things that are underpinning this strategy, first of all, is trying to balance solid frequencies for hands played versus folded, as well as how those hands were played. Raises for bluffs, raises for value, and calls. Secondly, um, adjusting so that my polarized raising ranges between bluffs and value moves more of my crappy hands into the bluff category and more of my solid hands, like pairs and suited connectors, into the calling ranges. So what I had before, I felt like, man, there's too many good hands that I'm I'm raising as bluffs here, and there's too many bad hands that I'm keeping in my call behind range. So that was the second thing, is trying to balance those so that the hands that I'm calling with are better calling hands, and the hands that I'm bluffing with are better bluffing hands. Uh, and then the third thing is uh, trying to continue to make it easy to remember and to apply. And this continues to be kind of the biggest struggle uh, as I'm trying to improve the frequencies, improving the balance. It becomes more and more difficult to try to uh, incorporate into memory and be applicable. But I have been using the strategy more and more as I play, and, and it, a lot of it is becoming second nature. So I think as this thing gets solidified, it's going to be very actionable and helpful for all of you. Uh, that are that are wanting to uh, look for a default strategy, and what I do like about this, getting us getting away from that is, if I think about how many tournaments, you know, the tournaments are really decided once you get to that final fifteen percent, and you're now on the bubble, you're now going forward. So many of the decisions before that, I think, I think we can overthink those. I think we can get too tricky. I think we can make too many hero calls. Raising my hand, um, I, I think uh, I think a good balanced yet straightforward approach is is more optimal in these weekly tournaments that we're playing at running aces or home games that sort of thing i think i think not outthinking ourselves um i think making decisions in advance is super helpful and that's what this is really designed to do so you don't just look down and you know somebody limps under the gun and you're the next to act and you look down at king jack and you're like oh what do i do here uh, this seems like a good hand. I mean, you know, you can do that, but I just feel like there's so much emotional energy spent and not really knowing and trying to incorporate all of that information at real time versus just knowing, is this in my range? Is this not in my range? And if so, what do I do with it as a default? And then allowing any information you have from how the game is playing to adjust that for you rather than trying to um, not have defaults and just sort of synthesize it all real time. So I think this is adding value in that way. Okay, the final thing I wanted to talk about with the strategy here is just summarizing again all of this stuff that I just shared with you. So here is the basic strategy, at least how I'm going to incorporate it. Uh, number one, before the hand is dealt, identify the playable range based on my position. So the button is two and then moving from there. So I need to decide what's my playable range two, three, four, five, six, whatever it is. Secondly, look down at my hand and see if it's in the playable range. If not, then I know I'm just done with the hand. I don't need to expend more mental energy wondering if I'm going to play or not. If I look down and I see unsuited cards that are that at least one is lower than a 10, I know I'm gonna pitch it all the time. And that's gonna be my most common hand anyway. Okay, so if I look down and see a pair that's below my range, I pitch it. If I look down and see suited cards that are below my range, I just pitch it. Um, or at least I, I have to wait for my turn, <laughs> but you know what I mean? I can mentally check out. So look at my hand, know if I'm gonna play it or not. And then if I'm in the playable, ha playable hand range and there's no action in front of me, I raise. If I'm in the playable range and there's just one or more limpers in front of me, I know I'm still gonna play the hand. Now I have to decide, am I gonna limp behind 
or am I going to raise? The default is to just limp behind, but I'm going to raise in two situations. I'm going to raise with my worst hands, and I'm going to raise with my best hands. Now, in phase one of the tournament, where we still have more than half of the people left, I would argue that my bad hands are those that are suited for gappers or bigger gaps, and my really good hands are my range nine hands. My pocket nines and higher, my suited cards jack and higher, and my offsuit cards queen and higher. Okay, so that's if there's limps in front of me. My default is to limp if I'm in the range, but I'm going to raise with suited four gappers, and I'm going to raise with anything in range nine. If I move into phase two, now I'm between that 15% and 50% of the people left, I'm going, to re- I'm going to relax those raising constraints a little bit. Instead of suited four gappers, I'll now raise with suited three gappers and bigger gaps. And instead of range nine, I'm going to now raise, raise with range eight hands and better. And then limp behind with the others. And then the final situation is if there's a single raise in front of me, what am I going to do? Well, first I need to adjust my default range by three ranges. So no longer am I in range three, I'm now in range six or whatever that might be in your situation. So now I know my new playable range and I re-ask myself, is my hand in that new playable range? If not, prepare to fold. If so, I'm either going to call behind or I'm going to re-raise. Okay, those are my only options. Once I know I'm in the playable range, I'm going to call or I'm going to re-raise. The question is, what am I going to re-raise with? Well, I'm going to re-raise with my worst hands, which I would consider suited three gappers and higher, and with my best hands, which are my elite hands, my pocket queens and higher, my ace king suited. Everything else, I'll just call behind the initial raise. If I move into phase two, I'm now going to relax those three betting Um, constraints. So now I'm going to three bet or re-raise with my suited two gappers or higher and my range nine or higher. That's what I'm going to do behind raises in phases one and phases two. So that's a summary of of the strategy. You might want to replay that a little bit. I'll try to write it out. Uh, I'll put some of it on the YouTube video as well. Um, But at some point I will package this all together. Once I feel really finalized, I'll put this together in a really solid presentation, uh, maybe a webinar or something so that we can really talk through it. But I'm, I'm remiss to do that as I continue to play with it and see what I like and what I don't like. But I do feel like in general, we're getting, uh, we're getting pretty close here to having a strategy that I can, I can use, um, with more more and more confidence. So that's the end of the content. Uh, Just a couple of reminders. November 29th, 7 to 9 p.m. Central Standard Time. A great great panel of players. Ian Matakis, Matt Hamilton, Max Havlish, Alan Cardi will be online to answer your questions. Go to recpokertraining.com to find out more, to sign up for that deal. Also, live play and learn sessions, December 16th. You can go out there to check out more information on that too, but we're gonna have two different levels. One from noon to three, one from four to seven p.m. It's going to be a great time. I'm super excited about it. I really am. Uh, it's going to be a good time. I'll try to record it if we can figure out uh, how that could work, so that we can make it available to those of you who are not in the area. Uh, and also, reminder: I'm looking to build some online discussion groups, maybe eight to twelve people. Uh, let me know if you want to be part of that. What sort of structure you want? What sort of frequency? And we'll start to build those out. Um, and also reminder, if you, if you have a group of, um, people that you play a home game with or whatever that want to do some private training, happy to do that. If it's local, I can get there. If it's not local and we can make the finances work, I'll travel to you. Uh, but also we can do some things online. We can do some webinar type things, some zoom sort of things where we can, 
uh, I can facilitate a discussion there and share some of the content there as well. So uh, whatever your imagination is, uh, we'll try to make it work. And then just final reminders, thanks to all you guys. Thanks to my friends, my listeners, the contributors, uh, all of you guys out there that are part of Rec Poker Nation. Uh, it's super encouraging and fun to see this thing grow. Um, but I love your feedback, man. Your feedback has been the lifeblood of this thing. So keep it coming. Also, thanks to Running Aces for continuing to sponsor us. Uh, you can encourage us by going out to patreon.com and you can support us for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, super encouraging, super helpful. Again, thanks to Tracy and Jack and Matt for your recent Patreon support. And you can also do a lot for us by going out and liking us, uh, subscribing, writing a review, uh, rating us, doing all of that stuff uh, out on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts or subscribe on uh, YouTube now. You can do that. If you want patches, if you want to represent with a, a, an, either a sew-on patch or an adhesive patch, uh, let me know. I'll send those out to you free of charge. I just need an address to send them to. Uh, and also you can get some uh, some cool merchandise out at uh, floptheworld.com slash rec poker, uh, hats, shirts, sweatshirts, all that kind of stuff. And again, as always, send me feedback, Facebook, Twitter, email, whatever. Uh, let me know. But that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, good luck on and off the felt. And for those of you in the U.S., uh, and I know we have a growing audience outside of the U.S. because I'm hearing from you guys all over the place, Australia and Holland and Canada. Uh, it's fun to hear from you guys. Thanks for that. But if you're in the U.S., uh, hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Maybe you're continuing your Thanksgiving weekend with family and friends. Uh, so hopefully that's a good one for you. I will chat with you, I guess, next week, if not before. Take care, y'all.